Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to yet another episode of As I Live and Grieve. It's true. We go through this day by day, week by week, and sometimes there's similarities and sometimes life can throw us curves. So we like to cover a vast amount of topics. We love diversity in our topics as well. Today, again, I'm going to tell you, you're going to love my guest. My guest today is Gary Sturgis. Hi, Gary. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Before we get started, would you just give our listeners a little bit of your background? So I lost my spouse in 2014 to stage four metastatic melanoma, which I always say is just a fancy term for really bad cancer. And so when that happened, I really wasn't prepared for the amount of grief that I was suffering. So I, I've always believed that tragedy and heartache happen to other people. And they're only images we see on the nightly news. And I watch with interest and I feel compassion for the victims and moved and, and then just moved on with my life. But I never stopped to think about what the aftermath of such tragedy could consist of and how it would affect those involved. So I know the reality of life is people die and they die every day. But when my spouse died, life stopped and changed. And, and I realized that the unfairness in the world hit really close to home. It was a direct hit to my own heart. So I, I had to find a way to deal with that with that grief and with that loss. And so um, I suppose we're going to talk a little bit about how I did that today. We are indeed. I know you're going to have a lot of insight for our guests. Let me start just by saying that I came across your name when I found a book. I have tons of books about grief on my bookshelves. I'm always looking for another one, though, because I know there are approaches out there. There's tones out there. There's words out there that I have yet to hear. What uh, You actually have more than one book, but the one that really intrigued me and really caught my eye was one, I believe the title, let me get it because I've got a little piece of it right here, Surviving Grief. 365 days a year. And immediately I thought, oh, cool. This is going to have something for me or for anyone grieving, something to read every single day. And I was absolutely right. Tell me a little bit about why did you write a book in this fashion? Well, um, I think the probably the main reason was that I know that when you're grieving, the last thing you want to do is read a book the size of War and Peace. And so, you know, attention spans are low after a loss. And so I thought it would be a lot easier if someone only had to read a page or two a day. And basically each day of, of the year, I've written something on some type of aspect of grief and loss. It can be anything from pet loss to losing a spouse, or it can just be, you know, child loss. So just a little bit of everything. So there is something in there for everyone, but some of them are just general you know, grief and loss. And I, I just thought that that would be easier for people. I did write two books pre prior to that. And I did have a lot of feedback about those books being good, but also people saying, you know, I'd love to read your book, but I just 
can't sit down and read a whole book. So I thought writing a book where someone only had to read a page a day would make it a lot easier and, and take it day by day. I think so too. And one of the things I also liked about it is it's not like a calendar in that there's no year there. So you can start at any point in the year. If you had a loss in the middle of July, where we are right now, you could start in the middle of July and still go through it for an entire year. You could even keep going past that year and reread it if you wanted to. In addition to loving the format, I also have to say I loved the way you write. It's conversational. It's like sitting down with someone and just having a conversation, just like you telling me what you experienced. And for my mind, someone who's grieving, you most want to feel that you're not alone, that other people have experienced something similar, that they're going through or have gone through something similar. It gives you that sense of belonging. So again, I like it for that. And I just have it open here to January 8th because this, these two lines or a few lines really caught my attention when you were talking about that night I went to bed, I was me. The next day, I was somebody else. I remember closing my eyes and thinking maybe it wasn't real. If I didn't open my eyes, maybe it wouldn't be true. That's truly how it feels. I read that and I felt so, so much in a group, so much like I wasn't alone. And it's been five years since my husband died. So that's just an example for our listeners out there. That's just an example of how easy it is to read this. And you can do little chunks of it a day at a time. So moving on a bit, you mentioned uh, stage four melanoma. Did you have much notice before your partner died? You know, I, I didn't because he felt fine. And so he had a mole on his back. We all have moles, but it was, you know, about the size of a nickel. And it started mm-hmm. sticking up, you know, a lot higher than it should have outside the um, surface of the skin. And so we went to the okay. dermatologist and they did a biopsy and it had really spread, you know, otherwise he felt fine. So it was kind of devastating to get that news from diagnosis to death was only six months. He was on hospice for four of those months. I took care of him myself at home. And so, yeah, so it was a, it was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Do you feel that even six months notice made you any more prepared for what you would feel afterwards? Absolutely not. You know, um, people ask me as a grief specialist, you know, what, what do I think is worse, sudden death or, or being a caretaker? And, and watching the person die. And quite frankly, my honest answer to that is always that they both suck equally. I think when you're when you're a caregiver and you're and the person, your loved one is dying from something, you know, a terminal illness, you still always in the back of your mind have that hope that some sort of miracle is going to happen and the inevitable is not going to happen. And so I think that's what keeps you afloat in that situation when you are in that in that role of a caregiver. And I think that's what I did. You know, I think I think deep down I knew what was coming, but I think in my heart and to keep going, I just believed that, you know, a miracle could maybe happen and, and what was happening wasn't actually going to happen. Yeah, I, I had a similar conversation for a panel I was on not too long ago and the question was broached about How if when you exchange marriage vows and you say till death us do part, why then does it come like such such a shock when it happens? And, you know, my very naive response was, well, because I say, you know, when you say that, you don't really think it's going to happen. 
that's the furthest thing from your mind. And I think through an entire relationship, whether married or not, just that's the furthest thing from your mind. And even though, as you say, even though you might know that some disease is terminal, you still hope. And the doctors are really good at promoting that sense of hope with clinical trials and, and everything else. So it still comes as a bit of a shock. And, and I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Caregiving is especially hard on the person, whether it's one week or four months or six months, very tough. So I applaud your strength for doing that for the love of your partner. That, that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. And, it, you know, Kudos, Kathy, it's yeah. interesting because, you know, I facilitate bereavement support groups for people that lost their partner uh-huh. or spouse. And in one of the groups, you know, I had mentioned that it's really difficult to be a caregiver when you don't have any clinical knowledge. I mean, I, I knew nothing about all these things that I was being told I needed to do. I needed to dress. I needed to dress surgical wounds. I needed to administer morphine. I mean, these type of things are so frightening when you have no clinical experience. And in the group that I was saying this, I happened to have a hospice nurse. And she said to me, you know what, Gary, sometimes having the knowledge is even more frightening. And I had never thought of it from that perspective until Uh she said that, you know, because her spin on it was her husband was dying. She was taking care of him. She was a nurse. She was a hospice nurse. So clearly she knew all the signs of end of life. And You know, I thought about that and I thought, you know, what she said resonated so much with me because I had always thought it was so bad not having the clinical knowledge. And she made me realize maybe I was better off not having. Maybe, maybe. Or at the very least, maybe your partner was, you know, because you had that genuine feeling of of helping and giving care without knowing all the medical stuff in the back and uh, without having to try to hide that. Um, those those visible signs. Um, so you said that you have two other books. What are your other books? So the first book I wrote is called Surviving, Finding a Way from Grief to Healing. And that book somewhat chronicles my own grief journey. I talk about, you know, what it was like to, to lose my husband, Rob, and what I did after that. And then, you know, how I came out the other end. And so I, I was asked by a grief counsel when I, when I after, shortly after my loss, you know, would I be interested in? She, she was the the woman that was counseling me was very big on journaling, and and I'm also a, a a big advocate for that. But she was saying, you know, you you you're journaling all these thoughts. Have you ever thought about putting your story down in a book? And I said, you know, that's a good idea. So I started to write the book early on, and then I thought to myself, you know, this book is just going to be completely sad because that's the place I was in. So. I, I put it aside, you know, and then as time had went on and I was finding my way through my grief and I was finding myself healing, that was when I sat back down to write that book. So um, I, I, that book is near and dear to my heart because not only do I share my own story in it, but I also share what I did to survive. And I always feel like if I survived, anybody can because I didn't think I was going to survive. Um, so that book is, is, is somewhat about that. And then the second book I wrote is called Grief, Hope, and the Aftermath. And what I did with that book was because I had been facilitating bereavement support groups for several years, I decided to share some of what I learned in those groups. And, and you know, I always say I, I'm constantly learning. I'm not an expert on anything. I'm a student on everything. And so in writing that book, I, I share also interviewed each chapter is some aspect of grief and loss. And then after each chapter... I interviewed someone that had that experience that that I was talking about in that particular chapter. So 
I also have each chapter at the end is a little is a little bit about the you know the story of somebody that I interviewed. So if it was a chapter on child loss, I interviewed a mom or a dad that lost their child, and and so that book has like a little more practical advice than than the first book, um, and I think it would be helpful to anybody that had any kind of loss or someone that was just trying to educate themselves a little more on grief and 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 all the aspects of it. Yeah. Now I have several questions kind of percolating in my head because of things you said. The first one I want to ask, you mentioned when you came through it, do you feel you have healed in grief or do you feel you're still grieving? Oh, I think I'll, I'm still grieving. I believe I will grieve until the day I die. And I believe that everybody grieves until the day they die. You know, we, I've heard people say, you know, it, it's not the grief that you want to get over, it's the pain. And I don't necessarily even agree with that. I think that it's important to experience the pain. So when I say I got through it, that's how I got through it. I experienced the pain. You know, I don't think that we can push the pain away. I think that we have to feel it. I always, I always say it's almost like throwing up. You know, you have all, all these emotions and feelings inside. And when you have a stomach ache, sometimes when you throw up, you feel better, you know, and, and I think it's the same way with grief. You know, I think that we have to we have to feel that pain and experience that pain in order to get to the other side. So to answer your question, I, I will be grieving until the day I die, because I believe that we miss these people we love until the day we die. I absolutely agree. In fact, I, I share many times that there's a quote by Jamie Anderson. I never really understood how can I describe grief to someone who hasn't experienced it? And how can I even describe to myself what it is I'm feeling? And in her quote, her last line or second to last line says, grief is merely love with no place to go. And I thought, that's it. That's it. Because I have this love for Tom, but he's not here. I can't pass it to him anymore. So it's it's hurting. And and to me, that was very appropriate. And I just love that quote. I agree. I'm going to grieve also till the day I die. I have also lost mother, father, and an infant son. And those were decades ago. And it had, really hasn't been until I have been working through my grief from losing Tom that those have come back to me. And I realized I never... I never really grieved those. That was at a period of time where I was told to just, come on, you got to move on and everything like that. So I'm, I'm still working through those as well. Grief was, grief was so pushed okay. under the rug, you know, back then. It and was. It, it really was. I'm glad that it's becoming a topic that we're not afraid of. Absolutely. And when we started our podcast two and a half years ago now, the, there, there were some podcasts now there are tons, just like books. There's a, an upsurge in the books about grief, and I'm so happy about that. In fact, as soon as we finish today, I'm going to order the others, the other two books of yours that I haven't ordered so that all three of your books are going to be on my shelf. I can't wait to read all three of them. Okay, let's talk about groups a little bit. I know you said that you facilitate some groups and everything. What was your experience in your own grief? Did you attend groups? I did. So my my experience with groups was a little interesting. I started my first, the place where I, I, the health and wellness center that was, you know, hosting the groups that I went to after my loss had a rule where you could, you know, you couldn't join a group unless you were at least six weeks out in your loss. And I was only three weeks oh. out. But I was just desperate for any kind of help at all. So they allowed me to go in at three weeks. And I, and I think I maybe learned very quickly why they said you should wait six weeks, because 
I was just so raw at that point. And so I went through that group and, and I did find it really helpful. I, I, I felt very alone in my grief and I think the group helped me not feel as alone. Um, after that group was over around maybe towards like the eighth or ninth month after my loss, I joined another group. And I, I think I found that second one even more helpful because um, the fog had lifted a little. So I was able to take in some of what was being said. So yeah, I think I, I'm a huge advocate of groups. I, I facilitate them now. And I think what I enjoy the most about facilitating support groups is seeing people heal. I mean, I really do see a difference from the first night to the last night of the group. Okay. Now, was this a group that had a specific curriculum, if you will? Were they doing like a different topic every week and, no, and or going by book? No, and I know what you mean. There are support groups that have specific topics for each night. We we have a very old, you know, this particular wellness center where I now work as, as a facilitator. We only do very open-ended groups where we tell them the very first night of the group that this group belongs to them and that we're going to talk about any topics that they want to talk about. And believe me, they have a lot to talk about. So there's never a lack of, you know, uh, although as a as a facilitator and haven't done it now for several years, the same topics obviously come up. You know, what do we do with the belongings? You know, do I take my wedding ring off or don't I? You know, what do I do about stupid things people say to me? You know, it's the it's the it's the what I call the basics of grief that tend to come up. So I, I kind of like that we 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 leave it an open ended kind of format in our group. Now, do you as a facilitator have some questions or topics? kind of stashed in the back of your mind if conversation should lag at all? I do. And, you know, it's interesting. When I was um, training to be a facilitator, one of the things that I was taught was that don't be afraid of silence. So, you know, a minute can seem like a very long time when no one's talking. Yes. And so there are times where, you know, nobody's talking, but you can look around the room and you can see the minds, just the, the cogs and the wheels turning and every single head in the room. So it doesn't take very long before someone speaks up and says something again. But I do have kind of, you know, what I call little taglines to, you know, I might just say like, you know, so is there anything specific any of you are struggling with this week? And then something will come up, you know? So it's just a, a little way to maybe prod them a little bit. You know, some some people are so hesitant to speak and then you have people that, you know, want to speak a lot. And I've actually had the people that don't speak at all come up to me at the end of the group and say, you know, I'm really sorry, I don't. I don't talk a lot and I always tell them, you know what, sometimes the person that's that's talking the least is listening the most. And I always say God gave us two ears and, you know, two ears right. and one mouth for a reason. So, Yeah, that's good. It sounds like a great facilitator. Do you have any suggestions for people looking for a group, what to look for, what to ask? Yeah, you know, and I, I think it's important to ask like some of those questions. You know, there's positives and what I call positives and pitfalls of groups. So, so just some of the positives of like, you know, it gives you hope that, that healing is possible from members in the group that are further along. It's a reminder that you're not alone. You can gain information and suggestions from, you know, other people's experiences. And it gives you the opportunity to support other people. And, you know, sometimes when people in a group will say something to someone else and then that person says, oh, I'm so glad you said that. You know, I never thought of that. That makes that person that said it feel good, not only the person that got the information, but also the person that said it. And then it also feels good to be a part of a group where everyone gets it, you know, and 
And I hear that a lot. You know, I, I like coming to this group because I feel like it's the only time I can talk about my dead person. You know, I can't do that with mm -hmm. all my other friends that don't get it and don't understand right. what I'm going through. Right. And some of the pitfalls are a little bit uh, almost the flip side of those in that, you know, it can be really overwhelming to be in a group with that much pain when you're already in pain yourself. And that's one of the things I tell the members on the very first night. I say, you know, don't take all this pain that's in this room home with you because you have enough of your own, you know. And I also think it can be discouraging because, you know, there's so many people that join a group, you know, there might be someone in the group that's had their loss three months ago, and there might be someone in the group that had their loss three years ago. And that person that had, you know, I know as a facilitator from, you know, the, the initial consultation with that person that they never grieved that person. So now three years later, it's coming back to bite them and they're in the group. And I right. think that's great, but that can be, you know, a little, discouraging if you're in your third month and you're thinking oh i'm still going to be like that person three years from now so that to me is like right. another pitfall and then also you can get some incorrect information and bad advice because everyone's situation and everyone's loss and everyone's life and relationship is unique so i think if you know you're in a group and someone's saying something that may not be right for you, you that might make you think oh maybe i must be doing something wrong because this person's telling me this this worked for her and that doesn't sound like something i was planning on doing so and then you know there's also judgment people compare their grief like whose grief is worse and whose grief is better and you know i say i say the worst grief is my grief and you know that that that's just the way that grief works no one can understand the shoes that anyone else is walking in and then also the culture of the group and what i mean by that is i know there's a lot of groups out there i've had people in my group that say oh i really like this group because the other group i went to was just a little too religious you know they're they're very faith-based and some people right. some people are more spiritual than you know churchy religious and so i think if you're in that type of group and that's not your thing that can be uncomfortable too but but i think other than those i think overall the benefits far outweigh the pitfalls okay good Good points, all of those. Now, do you think that if if someone went the first time and they, you know, I don't know, and they came home and felt that didn't help me at all, do you suggest they go back again? Is there some suggestion as to how many times you should try a group, one specific group, before you decide that that's not the group for you? Right. So good question because I one of the things I do on the very first night is I always tell them and this is from my own personal experience one of the things you're again trained on when you're a facilitator is not to share your own story to only maybe share your own story if you feel it's going to benefit the group so one of the things I always do in the first group is I tell the story about what it was like driving to that first group and how frightened I was and how nervous I was and how during that first group I said you know I'm not going to go back this is not going to work and the facilitator said to me, do me a favor just for me. Please give it one more night. See how you feel after the second night. And then if you still feel the same way. And after I went that second night, I actually started looking forward to going. So I usually tell them the first night, I'll always say to them, please come back. Give it one more chance. You know, if you come back next week and you feel that, you know, you still feel the same way you did tonight, then, you know, more than happy to, you know, say goodbye and wish you well. But I'll be honest with you, most of them come back that second night. And on the last night, they tell me, I'm so glad you said that the first night because I'm so glad I stayed. So go back at least once yeah. more. That, that makes perfect sense. Okay, one more question, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. You mentioned you have three books. 
you have another one in the works? Right now, I currently don't. I, my Surviving Grief 365 Days a Year just came out in September of last year. So that's not even a year old. And that book took a very long time to write. Really <laughs> difficult to write 365 different pages on grief and loss. So uh, I'm taking a little mm-hmm. break from the writing right now. I'm actually, I'm actually just now starting up doing some um, online grief coaching. So that's okay. keeping me busy. I'm I'm doing a redesign on my on my website, and and so that's all keeping me busy. So right now, no, but I do have I do have the cogs and wheels spinning on what the next book may be about. Okay, I, I have an idea of what it might be about as well, but uh, we'll see, and we'll we'll leave that for another time. Okay, this is uh, as we start winding down the podcast. This is the point where I actually turn the microphone over to my guests, and it's your chance to speak directly to our listeners. Tell them more specifically about your online uh, workshops. Tell them anything you'd like to tell them. Your website, whatever. We will also put your contact information in episode notes for the podcast, so they don't have to memorize it. You can mention it in passing. This is your time. So, Gary. Thank you. So we talked a little bit about my book, Surviving Grief, 365 Days a Year. And that book was actually born out of the fact that I have a Facebook page that's called Surviving Grief. And when I wrote the first book, I thought, you know, I'd really like to share some of my feelings with people, you know, people that maybe don't read the book. And so I started this Facebook page. And at the time, I, you know, I, I think in the first you know, a few months of that Facebook page, I had like 400 followers. And I thought, oh, you know, I never expected 400 people. But I started writing a blog. And I was at the time, I was writing them like probably once a month. And then people were giving me all this feedback about how much they were enjoying this blog. So then I started doing them weekly. And then it morphed into a daily blog. So I have a Facebook page called Surviving Grief, where I do a daily blog. And that was what gave me the idea to do the surviving grief 365 days a year because i know there's a lot of people that you know don't have a computer or they're not on facebook mm-hmm. and so i thought that would be a good way to to, to get some of the, what i was writing out to the to the world in book form so i do have that that facebook page which now has over 154,000 followers which i you know it, it astounds me that there's that many people that need help and i'm i'm just glad that maybe i'm reaching some of them and then I also have a website called Surviving Grief, and that's www.sgrief.com. And on that website, I do a blog. It's really just a monthly blog. I also have resources on there. I post, you know, where I'm going to be doing my speaking engagements. I do Surviving Grief workshops where I have an audience and I, I go through all the aspects of grief and loss, and I try to give them coping skills for all the different aspects of grief that they may be struggling with. Yeah, you know, that's that that's everything. And like I said, I'm, I've got some upcoming online grief coaching that I'm going to be doing as well. That's great. Uh, you have a knack for it. The, the words in your book that, that I have beside me here, and, and that's Kindle. I want to get the hard copy. But the words there, again, they're very conversational, but the, the words are very, they're very specific. You chose them precisely for the sense or the emotion that you intended to convey. And as a reader, I value that a lot. So I have to say, listeners, go grab one of his books, whichever one appeals to you more. Just go grab one. If you know someone that has a loss, whether it's a recent loss or not, 
go buy one, maybe this uh, 365 days a year, buy that as a gift for someone. It doesn't matter if their loss has been a month ago or 10 years ago. They're still going to value that. They're still going to appreciate the fact that you thought of them, that you thought that maybe, maybe they're still grieving. Because I think, like Gary does, that I'm going to grieve for the rest of my life. The grief has already changed. It's changed me. It's kind of morphed and become part of my life now. I'm not struggling with it as much, although there still are the occasional days. Those anniversaries are really, really tough. On that note, I'm going to have to say it's time for us to say goodbye until the next episode. All of Gary's contact information will be in the episode notes and on our website as well. You know that. Please reach out to Gary. Go to his Facebook page and join it. I recently did. And there's just tons and tons of support in there for whatever stage of grief you are at. On that note, please take care of yourselves. Stay safe. Practice that self-care. You know how important that is. We can't say that enough. And come back again. Catch you next week as we all continue to live in grief. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.